All right, Matthew chapter 3. So last week, we were introduced to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Last week, we took an in-depth look at where they began, where they went wrong, how their doctrines differed. And so this week, we have a confrontation between John and the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And I come across an old preaching from Billy Graham, which I thought went very well with our message today. If you were on trial for being a Christian, we've all heard, most of us have heard that, that if you were on trial for being a Christian, would they find enough evidence to convict you? If they were to come into your life and to, to go through your life with a fine-tooth comb, would they find enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? And so I took a part of his, I was wanting to do kind of a, my thought was to, to take you into a court scene where you are the defendant. During a time, probably not too far in the future, I'm afraid, and you've been accused of being a Christian. And I wanted to take you into that courtroom as they tried to convict you and to sentence you for being a Christian. And so I found this Billy Graham speech, and I've added a few things in there as I was going down through there. And so this is a, a, a corroboration between me and Billy Graham Mostly Billy, I promise you. So many people today claim to be Christians. Do you claim to be a Christian? That's an easy claim to make. I'm a Christian because I grew up in church, some people say. Others say I'm a Christian because I was baptized as a child. And maybe you've heard people say, I'm a Christian because my family are Christians. My grandmother, my grandfather are Christians, and so are my mother and my father. Why, they even helped me give our new pews at our church. But then there's you. You're the one here tonight or this morning. Let's think about you for just a moment. And, and seriously, I want to challenge you as I go down through. I want you for yourself. It doesn't matter about your spouse. It doesn't matter about your children. It doesn't matter. Right now, you need to focus on you because only you can be the Christian that you should be. So what about you? Are you a Christian? Do you trust Jesus? Are you following him? If so, that's what you say about yourself. Well then, how many people know it? How many of your friends and your co-workers, your family, your neighbors, would look at you and say, why, yes, yes, they are a Christian. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Just imagine for a moment that you're going to court on that charge. This person is a Christian. Now, of course, to convict the charge would have to be proven. 
And remember, all they need is a reasonable doubt. Now, among the evidence that would not be accepted in court would be items like jewelry, clothing, or bumper stickers. Those are all popular for everybody. I seen a gentleman the other day with probably the biggest diamond cross I've ever seen before, and man, could he cuss. Whew. So none of that works. You can't claim you're a Christian because of, what, of the, the apparel that you're wearing. So the only evidence that would count to convict you would be the way you live. Would your church attendance your faithfulness to a structured Bible study be enough to convict you. Your honor, the defendant had, I'm sorry, your honor, the defendant had close to 200 opportunities to attend Bible study this last year. They took advantage of this many services, and you fill in the blank. What excuse did they use to skip church? Would your ministry activities in your local church be such that it could be evidence? What if the authorities searched your vehicle or your house? Would they find anything incriminating? What would they find if your bank statements were brought before the court? What if they looked at your check registry? Any evidence of following Christ there? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we all know that God teaches as a minimum a believer should give back 10% of their first fruits. With opportunities to give to missions, to other Christian groups, other groups like the Gideons, to speakers, to church camp, the defendant gave a mere, you fill the percentage in, 20%, 15%, 10%, 5%, 2%? Would that be evidence for or against? So suppose the prosecution subpoenaed a record of the TV shows that you watched. Movies? What would that say about your commitment to Christ? What about the magazine subscriptions or your hobbies, social media, internet activities? If the people who know you best were called to testify under oath, what would they offer up for evidence? After interviewing your boss, your co-worker, your neighbors, your family, would the court convict you of being a Christian or would they acquit? I used to work with a gentleman. And I can remember one day I'd, I'd worked with him for several years. And I can remember one day I had made the comment, and I, I don't even remember the discussion we were having, but there were several of us standing there. And I had made the comment about them not being Christians. And this gentleman got very upset, got very angry. He said, I'm a Christian. And I remember I was just blown away. I'm like, you're a Christian? The one who parties and drinks every weekend? The one who sleeps around? You're a Christian? 
Why, yes, I am. Are you saying I'm not a Christian? Are you telling me that it's a sin to drink? And he started justifying everything. And, and I had worked with him for years, and I had not seen an ounce of evidence that would tell me that he was a Christian. And he was so angry because I, I didn't believe he was a Christian. So, what if they had secret recordings of your daily conversations? Would your language convict you? Cursing? Off-color jokes? Would the judge's gavel come down with a bang as he said, case dismissed for lack of evidence? Well, what about it? What about you? So let me ask you again this morning, and listen close. You, and you, and you, and all of you who can hear the sound of my voice, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? So as I said, last week we were introduced to this group of religious leaders. They had slithered their way into John's evangelistic outreach and baptism service. And he automatically saw them right away. And right through their hypocrisy. And then he confronted them. And that's what we're going to look at this today. So Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear and he shall baptize you with Holy Ghost and with fire. Those fan, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so now... Here we have these religious leaders standing before John, and he has called them out. He has recognized them in the crowd. And as we talked about last week, he looked at them and he described them as the very snakes that John would see frequently inside the desert where he had stayed. And he asked him, he said, who sent you out here? Why are you here? I know for a fact you're not here for the right reason. You have slithered in here as a bunch of stinking snakes. And they had showed up and they wanted to be baptized. Everybody else was doing it. They wanted to be a part of it. And he called them out. 
And he says, before I will baptize you, I want you to bring forth fruit that is equal to the importance of this baptism. Prove to me that you are a believer. You see, they were just put on trial by John. John called them out. They were called out for not having a right relationship with Jehovah. He said, you stand out there in all your glory. You stand out there with all your religious garb. You stand out there claiming to be more righteous and more religious than anybody here. He said, prove it. Prove it. Prove to me that you're a believer. You see, in Scripture, when you see the description of fruit, it is, the fruit is a natural byproduct of a genuine relationship with Jehovah God. It just naturally happens. I, I've always used the example, a dog barks because he's a dog. A duck quacks because he's a, he's a, he's a quack. He's a duck. <laughs> and why do they do that? They do that because that's their natural, that's their nature. That's what they do. And so as a believer, as a follower of Jehovah, he said, listen, if you are a true believer of the one true God, then there will be fruit in your life to prove it. And he said, before I baptize you, I want to see it. You see, Paul described this manifestation as deeds appropriate to repentance. That's in Acts 26.20. And James said it this way in James 2.17. Faith, if it has no works, is dead. It is dead. 1 John 3.7 says, The one who practices righteousness is righteous. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. And 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God, and yet he hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother and his sister whom he has, been, has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You see... These religious leaders knew very well what true repentance included. They knew exactly what was expected from Jehovah and what they needed to do. It was a changed life. And they knew that. Listen to their prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 33. When the righteous turn from the righteousness and commit injustice, then he shall die in it. But when the wicked turn from his wickedness and practice justice and righteousness, he will live by them. So they had no excuse. The Sadducees and the Pharisees knew exactly what repentance meant. They knew what was included. They knew what was required. Some of the great... Ancient rabbis used to say a man can shoot an arrow for a few furlongs, but repentance reaches to the throne of God. They knew. 
They knew exactly what was expected of them. You know, it's just fascinating to me that these Sadducees and these Pharisees never responded to John's request. We find nowhere in any of the scripture that they ever responded to what John was saying. But this is the thing. The other people that were standing around, the rest of the crowd that was there for the right reasons, they did respond. When, he, when, when John came down upon the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the people heard him questioning them. And they said, what are these fruits that you're talking about? Luke chapter 3 and verse 10 respond, re- record this response. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what are we to do? How are we to respond to this repentance? And he would answer and say to them, the one who has two coats share with one who has none. He said, you should be generous. As a believer, you should be concerned about your fellow brother and your fellow sister. And he would answer and say to them, the one who has food should do likewise. If you have excess and you have a brother or sister who doesn't have any, then he says, make sure that you provide, make sure that you share, make sure that you bless them. And then you had all of these little individual groups out there, and you had some of these that society looked down upon. You had soldiers out there. You had tax collectors out there. And so one by one, these small little groups come up to John and said, what about us? What are we supposed to do? Luke chapter 3, verse 12. Now even the tax collectors came to be baptized. And remember, the Jews hated the tax collectors, hated them, despised them. Because they had, in essence, climbed in bed with Rome and were now profiting because they were allowed to tax whatever they wanted and and take the excess. Rome says, hey, we want this much. You take what you need to survive. And they would take advantage of this, and the Jews hated the tax collectors. So now you have these tax collectors. They come up to John, and they said, teacher... What are we to do? And he said to them, collect no more than you have been ordered to. And then the soldiers also were questioning him, saying, then what are we to do as well? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone, nor harass anyone, and then be content with your wages. He said, don't use the power of your position Don't hoard it over people. Don't lord it over people. Don't abuse your power because nobody can touch you because you're a soldier and the whole wrath of Rome would come down on you. And he says, listen, don't extortionate people. Don't steal their money. Don't make them pay you. Take your wages. Be happy with what you got and treat people kind. You see, true repentance has three steps. Number one, we recognize that we're sinners, right? We recognize, we understand, I got a problem. I got issues. I understand that. But just 
recognizing that is not enough. It's not near enough. I mean, I'm telling you, there are some wicked people out there who know that they're wicked. There are some bad people that know they're bad, and it makes absolutely no difference. Number two, our emotions begin to feel that need to deal with that first understanding, to, feel with that, to deal with that knowledge that we are sinners, that we do have problems. There must be a change in what our mind knows. We start to feel that urge, that pushing. But in and of itself, that itself is not enough. To know it and to feel like you need to change it is not enough. But the third step, there must be actions in response to number one and number two. There must be actions. A change in your life. A 180-degree turn from the life that you were living. Forgiveness for past sins through salvation with the natural results being a changed life that bears fruits. In salvation, there will be a changed life. Period. You will be completely different. And the thing is, these religious leaders should have known this. They should have known this. And yet John saw no sign whatsoever of repentance. None. And he demanded to see it before he would baptize him. You know, I, I can't help but this reminds me of a time several years ago we had had a young lady who had began attending church here and and not long after she had began attending here she'd gotten saved and she wanted to be baptized man she wanted to be baptized so bad and, and the timing was off the weather was not cooperating and so we had we had scheduled it out so it'd be a little bit warmer when it was time to and you know and I always tell people I will baptize anytime anywhere any weather but man if we can put it off till it's 80 just that much better. <laughs> but I've done it, man. I've, I've been involved in baptisms when we had to break the ice. I will do it. So if you f so feel compelled to be baptized in December, bring it on. We'll go. If you can do it, I can, because I'm only going to here. And so I had talked her into waiting until it warmed up a little bit. And the time was getting close. It was, it was getting close to when we were going to have the baptism. And one day we were, we were doing something. I don't remember if it was a, a work day or something, but we had a lot of people here at the church. It wasn't during church service. And she came in, and, and mind you, she was a single lady. And she came in bragging about being pregnant. And she was so proud of herself. And I remember it just, it kind of took me back and, and, and so I, I got a hold of her, and, and I got a hold of, of another lady, and, and we went back, who, who was very close to this young lady. And I took them back into the classroom, and, and I said, listen, I can't baptize you. She said, what do you mean? I said, do you understand what baptism is? I said, baptism is an outward expression of an inward change. And I said, you obviously haven't changed. 
And she said, I've become a Christian. I said, but there is no evidence of that. I said, the evidence is fixing to start showing. I said, you can't be living and sleeping with your boyfriend and thinking you're right with God. You've got to make a change. She said, well, I got saved. And I said, listen, my recommendation to you is this. I said, you need to stop sleeping with your boyfriend. You need to separate or get married, one of the two. You need to make this right. I said, but I can't baptize you in this condition. Not the pregnancy, but the, the fact that she was unmarried. And, and, and I said, we have to take care of this. before." And she got offended. She got mad at me. She said, I'll find a church who will baptize me. And I said, I sure you will. I'm sure you will. She left the church. You know, but this was what John was saying. He said, listen, I have no problem baptizing you, but prove to me that there's been change in your life. This is not a game. This isn't something we're just a part of. I'm telling you, prove to me. I see you snakes out there. I've seen your life. I've heard of the things you've done. You all a bunch of slithering, sneaky snakes. And prove to me it's not true. And I will be glad to baptize you. You see, if the fruit doesn't match the claim, then baptism is a farce. If it doesn't match what you're proclaiming, then it's a slap in the face of God to be baptized. I had... You know, it's funny, because as I, as, I, as I went through this study, man, I had all of these memories flooding back from years. You know, we've been here 13, 14 years. And I, I remember I had a, a gentleman who was attending here, and he hated somebody. Oh, he hated them. And I kept telling him, I said, listen, you've got to deal with this hate. He said, I'm not ready to. I said, it doesn't matter. You have to deal with it. You don't understand. It isn't like we have an option. You have to forgive this person. It's not a choice that, that, that you can choose to or not to. You must. And he said, I said, what would he have to do for you to forgive him? He said, well, he would have to make a public apology. And I said, really? And the person did, and they still wouldn't forgive them. Aren't you glad that God doesn't do that? I mean, can you imagine if God says, before I will forgive you, you have to go back, you have to call every single person that you ever sinned against me and profess that before all of those people, before I'll forgive you. And yet God says, you know what, it doesn't matter. I will forgive you in private. I will forgive you in public. I will forgive you at any time, anywhere. Man, I'm glad that's the type of God we serve. Now, <clears throat> listen, John wasn't trying to humiliate these. That was not his purpose. He wasn't trying to humiliate. I mean, he was being honest before them. He was telling them what they needed to hear. You see, this is an eternal matter. 
This is eternal we're talking about here. This isn't just, he had to make sure, for sure. Listen to Jonah 3.10. My notes went off. Jonah 3.10 says this. And when God saw their deeds, did you hear that? When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their evil way, then God relented of the disaster which he had declared he would bring on them, so he did not do it. So you remember Jonah had tried to run, remember, the, the fish, the belly. And, and so he was, and after that, he was so angry at God. God, I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to forgive them. But did you notice what he said? It said God noticed their deeds. It didn't say God heard their prayers. It didn't say God saw their heart. It says God saw their deeds he saw that they had made a change in their life and then he would he did not he did not do what he said he was going to do which was to destroy Nineveh I I remember a time I had a gentleman professing Christian and and honestly 99.9 percent of the times I have no doubts that he's a Christian and he come up to me and he says I got a joke for you And I said, before you tell this joke, is this one you should be telling? He said, it's not bad. I said, all right, go ahead and tell the joke. Well, he told the joke, and it was pretty raunchy. It was pretty off-colored. And he just laughed. And I said, why would you tell that joke? And this is what he said to me. He said, oh, God knows my heart. I said, and so do I. Because the Bible says out of the heart the mouth speaks he goes oh I just hate you sometimes I said there it goes again but see it doesn't matter what you tell me I mean here God saw their deeds it doesn't matter what you think it doesn't matter what's going I'm telling you that your actions will automatically come into play when you make a change in your heart and a change in your life Now, verse 9 says this. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able to these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. You see, these Jews believed that just because they were the children of Abraham, that they had an automatic seed in heaven. They had a pass, an automatic season pass that when the time come, they would automatically go to heaven because they were Jews. They are God's chosen people. For Pete's sake. You see, they were taught that Abraham stood at the gates of Gehenna or at hell and would turn back any Israelite who accidentally happened that way. Right? That's what they believed. That's what they were taught. And John said, it's not true. It's not true. You don't get an automatic pass just because of who you're related to. You don't get an automatic pass just because of who your father is. You see, 
that is no more true than my children because I'm a pastor getting a free pass into heaven just because I'm a pastor. It doesn't work that way. We're not responsible for the sins of our fathers as well as we don't automatically go into heaven because of the blessings of our fathers. It just doesn't work that way. And John says, that's not how it works. It's not how any of this works. I was watching many, many years ago, some of you might remember the play that, that was real popular for a while called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. And we had went to Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames, and I, I remember one of the skits. And, and what Heaven's, for people who don't know Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames, it was a series of a lot of small skits that dealt with people's lives and, and things that would happen in people's lives. And in this one... A father and a son was coming out of church, and they were driving down the highway, and, and uh, the son looked at the dad, and he said, Dad, what do you think about what the preacher was saying? He's like, oh, man, I didn't hear a thing he said. He said, you know, I just go there to please your mom. He said, I'm telling you, she's got enough religion for both of us. And then they were in a car accident, and both of them were killed. And you see, you don't usher yourself into heaven on the skirt of somebody else it doesn't matter how religious mom was or how religious dad was or how religious grandma was or how religious grandpa when you stand before god it will be you standing there all by yourself and you will be judged by what you have done it doesn't matter what everybody else done around you and you know jews even today believe that just being a jew is enough that they have a spot reserved for them in heaven just because they're Jews. This is exactly what John is rebuking, exactly what he's rebuking. And, you know, Jesus rebuked this same thought. But, you know, and it, it, it's interesting to me that you can find some parallels in, in what John preached, but then you would see Jesus later preach the same message. And, man, he didn't hold anything back. Listen to this. It's in John chapter 8. They answered and they said to him, Abraham is our father. In essence, you can't speak to us this way. How dare you talk to us like this? And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham didn't do this. You do the deeds of your father. Who was their father? Satan, right? And just in case, just in case that, that they didn't understand this. And, and the next part of the verse said, and then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one Father God. Remember what that was? They believed that, that Mary had had an, an adulterous affair, and Jesus was the product of an adulterous affair. And so here they looked at him and says, we know who our father is. Abraham is our father. Do you know who your father is? At least our relationship is, is proper. You're a product of fornication. 
That's what they were accusing him of. And then in verse 44, just in case there was any question about what Jesus was implying, he says, you are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father, you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks, it's a lie. He speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. And you are his children. You claim to be the children of Abraham, and I'm telling you that you're the children of the devil. Man, you go, Jesus. And then to further prove this idea that Jews don't automatically go to heaven, listen to Luke chapter 16. Now, you, most of you will know this story. There was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine living, linen, enjoying himself in splendor every day. And then there was a poor man named Lazarus who was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed from the scraps which fell from the rich man's table. Not only that, the dogs would also come and lick his sores. Now it happened that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's arms. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, speaking of the rich man, now listen to this. In Hades, he raised up his eyes being in torment and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his arms. Here it is, listen. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony and in this flame. Now listen to what Abraham said. But Abraham said, child. Remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus had bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm which has been set so that those who want to go over from here will not be able to, nor those who want to cross over to here to us can do it. And so here you had the rich man who called Abraham his father, and you had Abraham who looked at him and called him his child. And yet you had the rich man in hell. You see, most Jews believe that hell was reserved for the Gentiles. Reserved for the Gentiles. It wasn't for the Jews. The second part of, of verse 9 says this, For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And you know, some commentators believe that he was using this as symbolism to speak of the Gentiles. Which as I looked at that, I, I, I mean, God could literally raise up stones if he wanted to, to have his children. 
But it made sense to me because we see several times throughout where we see that, that God invites the Gentiles to come in to be his children, to be grafted in, to be adopted in to the family. And so it just made sense to me that you would look at a Jew who thought that, that hell was reserved for the Gentiles and for him to say, listen, God can take these Gentiles and make them children of God. He don't have to have you to worship him because I'm telling you the Gentiles can do that. And listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 8, verse 10 through 12. It says, now when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and he said to those. Now, now this is speaking of the Roman centurion when he had asked Yahshua to heal his servant. And Jesus had said that he would go heal him. And he said, listen, you speak the words. I'm a man in authority. I understand that all you have to do being the ultimate authority is speak the words and my servant will be healed. I understand that. And so this is Jesus' response to this Roman centurion. He says, now when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I have never seen this type of faith in any of the children of Israel. And this man is a Gentile. And I say to you, that many will come from the east and the west, speaking of the Gentiles, and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But listen to this. But the sons of the kingdom, the Jews, will be thrown out into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He said, listen, I can take these worthless hard Gentiles, and turn them into men and women who will worship God. You don't get an automatic pass just because you're a Jew. Just because you're a child of Abraham, you don't get an automatic pass. Wow. In verse 10, And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. You see, at the end of the harvest, the farmer would go through and he would, he would inspect the plants, he would inspect the trees, the vines, and he would look, and if he found one that didn't produce, he would cut that one down because all it would do was steal nutrients from all of the ones that were producing. And so he would cut it down, he would pile them up, they would carry them out, and they would burn them. That's all they were good for. There was nothing else that they were worth doing but to take them and burn them. And he used this as a description. Now, remind, mind you, he's speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he says, listen, you're out here amongst all of the religious people, and you claim to it, but I see no fruit on you. And I'm telling you now, the farmer's going to come through, and he's going to cut you down. And he's going to burn you. He's going to burn you. And he says, listen, he said, the axe is laying at the roots. The axe is waiting. And you see the fire here is speaking of judgment. It's speaking of judgment. And he says it's laying at the root of the trees, waiting for judgment to be instituted on you. It's ready. It's waiting. And as I said, this includes all unbelievers, unrepentant persons. Now, 
I tell you what, I got to this verse right here. And in all the years that I've, I've been a Christian, I've heard this verse in verse 11 preached the same way. And in my studies, are you ready to be challenged? Are you ready to be challenged this morning? If you're ready to be challenged, say amen. amen. All right, I hear you out there. Be ready to be challenged. Verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after the mi is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, and he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Okay, so the first thing that John does is he points out, he says, listen, because you've got to remember, his disciples that were following him around, they idolized him. They lifted him up. There was a point when his disciples come to him, and, and, and he's speaking of Jesus, and he's trying to point people towards the Messiah. And they're looking at him. They're like, John, but what about you? And he says, listen, I must decrease, and he must increase. That was my whole purpose. I've nev I never had the purpose of building followers. You were never to follow me. He's the one. You must follow him. And he says, listen, there's one coming. He said, I am not even worthy to take the sandals off of his feet. And see, you need to understand that, that the lowest of the slaves, the lowest on the rung of slaves was the one that done that, was the one that took the sandals off and would wash the feet of their master. And he says, I'm not even worthy to do that. I mean, you, you remember when, when, when the disciples, when the apostles all joined together on the night before Jesus' crucifixion, and they were in there, and they were arguing what? About who was the greatest in the kingdom? Why were they arguing that? Because somebody needed to start washing some feet. And they're arguing back and forth about who's the greatest in the kingdom, and they're not going to stoop to that level. I'm not washing your stinking feet, Peter. You seen them nasty things? corns on the side, dirty, nasty. And then Jesus got up and he grabbed a basin of water and began to wash. He did the lowest. He humbled himself to the lowest common denominator, to the lowest slave because they were too proud to do it. And yet John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. I can't even wash his feet. I can't even do the task of the lowest slave. That's how low I am below him. Don't you dare follow me. You see, John says, I can only deal in symbolism. He deals in reality. Everything I do is symbolic. Everything he does is eternal. And then... I believe what we're dealing with here is three different baptisms. So far, we're good, right? Three different baptisms. We have the baptism with water, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then he speaks of the baptism with fire. So three distinct individual baptisms. So... Here we go. So the second baptism that John mentioned was later promised by Jesus, right, at his ascension. And then it was fulfilled 
at Pentecost. Now listen to John chapter 14. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper so that he may be with you forever. You see, the helper is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. He says it's only for believers because it does not see him or know him, speaking of Jehovah. But you know him because he remains with you and he will be in you. See, up to this point, other than John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit did not indwell believers. It would always say, as you look in the First Testament, it says that the, the Holy Spirit would come upon them. John was the first to have the Holy Spirit in him. And then Jesus says, listen, for believers in the future, he said, I'm going to send back a comforter. I'm going to send back a helper. And every single true believer will receive that helper within him. And it will give you the ability to live a Christian life. It will give you the power to go through things that are impossible to go through. And he says, everything that you need will be given to you through the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit, they're there. When you need them, they're there. You'll use them when you need them, and God will give you those powers. And he says, so listen. He said, I am going to send a comforter. And then the third baptism. This is the one I feel is misused so many times. The baptism of fire. Now, some believe that this is the fire that is spoken of at Pentecost, the tongues of fire, right? I mean, you always hear, I've heard them uh, for years, I've always heard, this is speaking of the baptism of fire, of the tongues of fire that came upon the believers at Pentecost. Do you realize that Acts 2.3 does not say that? Listen to what Acts 2.3 says. And tongues that looked like. Tongues, these were tongues that lit upon them that looked like fire. Not that they were fire. Distributing themselves and tongues rested on each of them. It says they looked like fire, but did not say that this was fire. This says this is a baptism of fire. Now, some believe that this is representative of cleansing and purifying. But see, I think that we've taken this the wrong direction. I don't believe this is a baptism for believers. I believe this is a baptism for unbelievers. And I'll tell you why I believe that. Because if you look at chapter or at verse 10 and you look at verse 12, in context, that's why I tell you, context is so important in order for you to understand a verse right. You have to look at the full, you cannot take one verse and build a theology on it. In context, in verse 10, fire represents judgment. In verse 12, fire represents judgment. So you tell me what verse 11, fire would represent. Judgment. Right? It wouldn't make sense to change it right in the middle of it. It wouldn't make sense. It, it, it goes against everything. You've got to understand fire in verse 10 is judgment. Fire in verse 12 is judgment. Fire in verse 11 is speaking of judgment. And you see it in both cases. And we're going to look quickly at verse 12. But you see it in verse 10. You see the blessings of the believers and the judgment of the unbelievers. 
in verse 12, you see the blessings of the believers. You see the judgment of the unbelievers. And so when he says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, that's the blessings of the believers, and he will baptize you with fire. That is the judgment of the unbelievers. Whew. Oh, man, I look, you guys are flipping through your Bibles now looking. Does it really say that? But it makes sense. I, I mean, you want to talk about an aha moment for me. I was like, oh, my gosh. Now, I wasn't, that wasn't my original thought. I came across that in a commentary. But when I did, I went back and I looked at it. I'm like, that makes perfect sense. In context, that's what it fits. It absolutely fits in context. So, if we see blessings and judgments in 10 and 12, why would we think verse 11 was any different? It's kind of stretching in order to pull that out. And then verse 12. Though whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat unto the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, you've got to understand what the threshing floor would look like. Now, this threshing floor was 30 to 40 feet in diameter. And what they would do is they would go up on a high hill so that the, you know how you get up on the hill and the wind blows? I mean, you just can't get away from it. And so they go up on this high hill and they would be in, begin to create a bowl up there. They would try to either, if it was rock, they would try to get the rock hewed down, and they would create it so the sides were higher than the middle. And then they would take the grain, and they would throw that grain inside of this, and then they would bring in oxen, and this oxen would drag around this heavy beams, and as it drugged through there, it would separate the seed from the chaff. It would separate all this grinding and all this moving, and then he who does that, would come in and he had a shovel, basically a shovel. It's, a, it's kind of a flat. It doesn't look like our shovels, but it's just kind of a flat. And what he would do is he would come in there and he would scoop in and he would throw it into the air as high as he could throw it, and the wind would blow away the chaff. It would blow away the waste. It would blow away that which was not desirable. And then the seeds would fall back down into that bowl. And he would continue to do that until he had all of the bad stuff out and all he had left was the good stuff. And then it says he would take the seed and put it in the barn. What is the barn? What is the symbol of the barn here? Heaven, right? So he says the good seed, the believers, will be separated from the unbelievers. The believers will be gathered together and will be brought into the eternal kingdom. And the bad stuff, those unbelievers, will be separated from the believers in the final day. And they will be burned in judgment like chaff. Like the waste that they are. You see, the Messiah will separate believers from unbelievers. So how is your fruit? Would you stand to your feet? You see, this is the day that we self-examine, right? This is the day that we look within ourselves. I don't know what your life is like. I got a 
pretty good idea what my wife is like. But I'm away from her 80% of the time. You see, I can fool you most of the time. You can fool me most of the time. So this has to be a self-examination. It has to be a self-examination. You, this is so important for you. This doesn't benefit me. This is for you to examine yourself. Are you still, you know, I, I, I still remember I, I, when I first got saved. I, I remember when I first got saved, and I, have a, I had a gentleman tell me, he said, you know what, you'll get over it. It was 30 years ago. I'm getting close to getting over it, but not quite yet. I'm just right there, right on there. But, I mean, let me ask you this. From the time that you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, are you more excited? Are you less excited? Are you more involved? Are you less involved? Only you know that. I don't know. Man, I've seen some on-fire Christians when they get saved, and then a few years later, where'd they go? So how are you? You. You have I'm not... Don't look at your mate. Don't look at the, how are you? I'm not even going to look at you. How are you? Father, we thank you. What a powerful message you've given us today. And Father, I thank you that you have put before me a flock that is willing to be challenged. I thank you, Father, that they can stand before you, naked before you, exposed and that, Father, you can look and to tell them where they fall short. And, Father, I believe their heart's desire is to make that change. Whatever it is, Father, I don't know their circumstances. I don't know their heart. But you do, and they do. And, Father, you love these people. You love them way more than I do. And God, my heart's desire is that they receive the fullness of the joy and the glory that you have for them in the life that they live on this side. God, I believe they're, they're ready to cross over. I believe that each of these people have received you as their Lord and Savior. But God, I believe there's so much more. And sometimes we just allow the world to to ooze into our lives, Father, to the point that it begins to hinder our walk with you. We start slipping here and there. We start making little mistakes. We're not as committed. We're not as dedicated as we were just a few years ago. And today, God, we examine ourselves. We stand before this mirror, this mirror of your word. And Father, as we conclude this service, I pray that you pour your blessings out upon your children as they leave this house. God, I pray they leave here encouraged. I pray they leave here excited and ready to further this walk that you have given them. And Father, we ask all these things in Yahshua's very precious name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.